Well, hey there, everybody. We'd like to invite you to visit South Dakota through the eyes of local Lou. She'll take you on a tour of lots of things to see and do. So enjoy your virtual visit through the eyes of local Welcome back to the Local Lou Podcast. I am so excited to see you guys again. It's been a while, and that's on me. I had a lot going on in the land of Local Lou. (laughs) I will say, though, even though I haven't been recording, I have been exploring. If you're friends with me on Instagram, or I suppose follow me on Instagram, you definitely know what I've been up to. I like to share photos of beautiful places around um, Southeast South Dakota on my Instagram page, as well as fun historical stuff I come across. And then in my story, you can check out little bits of my personal life. So follow Local Loop Podcast on Instagram if you haven't already. What else have I been up to? Oh, I know. There's a local podcast named Midtown Coffee Radio Hour. If you guys haven't listened and you really enjoy, well... A radio hour, uh, then I would suggest you take a listen. It's a really fun mix of music, skits, and stories. My favorite are the little gnomes. Well, they're not, they're not so little. Now, I will say that I am a Midtown Mug Club member. Don't be too impressed. It's kind of metaphorical. However, I will say I did go to a backyard, uh, let's call it a shindig, for Midtown Coffee Radio Hour. That was really amazing and lots of fun. They're actually going to be doing some live shows this summer out at Straw Bale Winery too. If that's your jam, it should be your jam. Okay, history stuff. What's up with some history stuff? Gosh, when we left here last time, we were talking about the Dakota War of 1862. I was lucky enough to have Hashtag History, which is a history podcast that is amazing. They're also super consistent. If you're looking for a history podcast that hits it out of the park all the time, has consistent, really cool and good episodes, check out hashtag history. Anyways, Rachel and Leo were here at Local Lou, which again, mind boggling, don't understand it, just enjoy it. We talked about the Dakota War of 1862. War of 1862 has a lot of different names. The Dakota Conflict, U.S.-Dakota War of 1862, Little Crow's War, Dakota Uprising, Sioux Uprising, Sioux Outbreak. There's a lot of things going on there. And you're going to hear it referred to in a bunch of different ways on these historical markers. Not just today, but going forward. And actually going backward, too. Because if you remember, some of the historical markers that we've talked about in the past, before the episode about the Dakota War of 1862... Well, those mentioned it, again, with interchangeable names. You're also going to hear the historical markers refer to the Native Americans as Indians. I will refer to them as Native Americans, unless I'm using a quote from a newspaper article or a letter from the time period. There is very little political correctness in the history of South Dakota, or maybe all of U.S. history. So here's the scary part. I'm kind of going to wing it today. I'm just so excited to get this out there and start this conversation about the family that we're going to discuss. A big part of it is I wonder how to say their last name. And so that's kind of going to be a thing. I'm going to stick with my interesting pronunciation of it. And we're going to hope that that's right. Now, there's no way to really know here 
these people have been dead for a very long time and any relative would have their own modern pronunciation. So the family's name that I'm going to say is Amadin. There is a chance I'm saying that incorrectly and my apologies. It also might sound annoying because I'm going to say it a lot. All right, so we're going to learn about the Amadin family. We're going to read some newspaper articles. We're going to get to read some letters and obviously some historical markers. <laughs> there are quite a few historical markers that mention the Amadin family. Today we're going to focus on two. And I said that kind of slow because I'm actually kind of deciding right now if it's three. I guess I'm going to say two. Let's stick with two for today. And I can always edit that to three. <laughs> no, I think, I think there's two. I think there's the Amadin Affair and the Amadin Stone House. Again, this should surprise you. I'm winging it that much that I have decided to do this right now, today. And I'm still deciding which markers we're going to cover. I'm literally going to bring up a picture on my phone of these markers and read them to you and then sort of discuss some of the research that I've already done and weave it in there without having a game plan. This is all very new to me. I hope there are not a lot of fancy words on these ones because I'm not prepared. <laughs> the first historical marker that we're going to talk about is the Amadin Affair. This historical marker is actually on a really beautiful high point. It's going to sound confusing if you're not from the area. So it's by the penitentiary and it's gorgeous, <laughs> but it's true. It really is. It's sort of up on a hill. It's got a gorgeous view. It's amazing at sunset. It's called the Pioneer Monument. I believe this to be the first historical monument marker in the Sioux Falls area. So that's cool. I will say it's unfortunate that this historical marker gets a lot of non-historic action. I've done some cleanup to that area before, and yeah, there are people there that are not celebrating the pioneers. Let's just say that. I'm actually going on my Instagram right now to a post from January of this year where I actually posted the Amadin Affair marker, and I'm just going to read it to you from there. Although I will say that I just went to this historical marker yesterday, so I'm not really cheating here. Historical marker, Amadin Affair. The 1862 Sioux Uprising, a result of unjust government treatment, claimed many Indian and non-Indian lives. Near this place, on August 25, 1862, two of its victims, Judge Joseph B. Amadin and his son William, were killed while making hay on their claim, which was a mile north of their cabin in Sioux Falls. Amadin was a country probate judge, treasurer, and commissioner appointed by Governor Jane and the territorial legislature. When he and William failed to return home at sundown, Mrs. Amadin became alarmed and sought help from the Dakota Calvary detachment in the village. A search was to no avail, but their bodies were found in the morning. Joseph died of a single bullet wound. William was riddled with arrows. George B. Trumbo brought their bodies back to the village. Later, Sergeant Jesse Buell Watson, Company A, Dakota Calvary, reported we picked up the bodies and buried them in a cemetery on what is now North Dakota Avenue. In the opinion of John Renville and Joseph Laframboz, 
veteran fur traders, and plainsmen, the Amadern were slain by members of the band of the warriors White Lodge. He was under orders from Chief Little Crow, Indian leader, in the Dakota War to drive white settlers from the Sioux Valley. Pure chance placed the Amadins in the path of White Lodge's scouting party. Two days later, orders came by courier from Governor William Jane to abandon Sioux Falls and seek shelter in the territorial capital at Yankton. Settlers and soldiers together hastily set out in a wagon train before sundown. Following the settlers' flight to Yankton, Sioux Falls remained abandoned until the establishment of Fort Dakota by federal troops in 1865, when settlement was resumed. Joseph B. Amadin was born in Connecticut in 1801. He came to Sioux Falls from St. Paul, Minnesota, with his wife Mulhalla, son William, and daughter Eliza sometime before 1860. Historical Marker, Amadin Affair at the Pioneer Monument, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Joseph Amadin was born September 29th in Hartford, Connecticut in the year 1800. At least that's what I found. And it's what the family Bible says. So let's go ahead and go with that. We also know for sure that he died on August 25th, 1862 in Sioux Falls, one mile north of his cabin. That's something that's going to pop up a lot of times. The way this historical marker is written really confuses me. and I almost feel like the paragraphs should be read in reverse order, but who am I to rewrite somebody's rewritten history? Let's go ahead and explore more about Judge Joseph Amadin's history. Uh, Joseph was married to Emily Morse who was from Vermont. He and Emily, they went ahead and got married December 25th, 1827 in Vermont. They went on to have four children. Well, four children that lived. They actually had, they actually had 10 children with four that would make it past infancy. In 1840, we have Emily and Joseph and whatever living children at the time living in Lewis, New York. In 1850, they're living still in New York, just in Essex. Somehow between 1850 and 1853, Emily dies and Joseph marries his second wife, Malhalla, in St. Paul, Minnesota, October 8th, 1855. In the fall of 1858, Joseph Amadin and his new wife, Malhalla, moved from St. Paul, Minnesota to Sioux Falls. With him, of course, his wife, his son William, and daughter Eliza. He was working as a stonecutter in 1860, which is something we see a lot around here, a lot of masonry with the quartzite. And in the spring of 1862, when Minnehaha County was first being organized, he was nominated by Governor Jane and elected as a treasurer, commissioner, and probate judge. And again, that sounds super amazing, and I'm sure he was extremely qualified and earned those things, but he was also one of like three men in the area, so, you know, the cards were stacked in his favor. I'm sure he earned it. I'm sure he earned it. But let's get back to the tragic event that brings us here today. That day in August of 1862, we have a letter from Joseph's widow, Mahala, to her stepdaughter, Martha that was written 48 days after the tragic event. I've meshed together a few poignant points of interest from the letter. Mahala starts by saying, I felt alone in my great sorrow. I'm almost crushed to the earth. 
She then goes on to tell Martha, Your father always had so much pity for the Indians, and he used to give them so much and feed them too, and they have to murder him without the least provocation. It is hard to feel it is right. Mulholland now goes on to give a summary of the events from that day. Well, from those days. That fearful Monday night I shall never forget. It was one of agony for me, for I knew something awful had happened, or one of them would have come home. I went to the soldiers' camp and asked for one of them to go with me, but they said it was useless for me to go, as they could find them just as well. I went home and watched and cried until three o'clock, when they came back and said they had found their oxen and wagon and dinner pail and everything but them. Oh, how I longed for morning to come. I could neither sit still nor stand still. All I could do was cry and groan. I felt almost sure the Indians had killed or wounded them so they could not get home. My dog was all the company I had that fearful night. As soon as it was light enough to see, the soldiers went again to search and found them in our cornfield. Your father was shot in the breast three times and Willie in the back seven times. The next day after they were buried, an express arrival from the governor informed us of the Indian troubles in Minnesota and advising us to leave without delay. And in little more than an hour, we were ready to start. It commenced raining and now was so dark, the lieutenant thought it more prudent to wait till morning. The settlers, the settlers all went to the soldiers camp to stay that night. It was another night of horror for me, for we expected an attack from Indians. They were seen prowling before dark. They came into the settlement Tuesday morning and fired upon the soldiers, but were driven back. Your father and Willie were buried Wednesday morning, and we left Sioux Falls Friday morning. We saved but little of our goods. We had only one wagon and five persons to ride in it. Your father and I had worked very hard this summer and were living more comfortable than we had before since living in Dakota. We had large crops and about 35 hogs and 70 hens, but all is gone, as well as a large portion of our household furniture. It was the hardest thing for me to leave your father there. I can't bear to think he lies in a desolate place with no friend to even visit his grave. Why is it that one as good in every respect as he was, should have as hard of life and death as he did. He said to me one day or two before he was murdered, I want to live and die with you. But that poor consolation was denied him. May God forgive me for my murmuring. Malhalla. In an undated testimony from Joseph Amidon's daughter, Martha, we know only that she wrote this after her marriage in 1863 as she signed it with her married name, Martha Eugenia Amidon Seaman. This testimony, I'm sure, has some value in it, though right away, guys, I'm going to tell you it reads a little bit to me like the sainting of her dead father, and maybe not everyone is going to agree with that. A few of the quotes, though, from the letter kind of strung together to me read like that. Uh, Martha says, my father was a man who right was everything and no tricks of speech were tolerable to him. He was a simple-hearted, devoted Christian. In all of the troubles, he never wavered in his faith. He has unusual physical courage. He feared nothing. But wait, there's more. Martha then goes on to tell us there was this time that her dad was alone in the woods in Minnesota when he was in serious danger from timber wolves, but somehow miraculously escapes. He just miraculously escapes this. 
by what seems like pure chance and no details are given. Then, of course, she tells us how he was filled with parental love and courage and pure heroism when he walked with perfect composure to see what happened to his son, Willie, and he himself gets murdered having never fired a gun in his life, in his right hand resting inside his vest, he walked towards certain death. I know I have cherry-picked some things here to show you that it's maybe a little bit gilding of the lily stuff, but there is one part of this testimony that actually sticks out to me and gives a little bit of an insight into Joseph Amidin as a human being. Something that really shows me maybe who he was or just a little bit even if I am looking through Martha's perfecting lens, Martha states, he suffered himself often intensely from a depression of mind, but he never imposed his grief on others. I've seen him for two or three days, neither eat nor sleep, but when the cloud lifted, he looked as though he had passed through a heavy sickness. I kind of like knowing this about Joseph. It shows me pieces of a real man, a man who is hardworking and trailblazing in some ways. He was part of the foundation for a new city that would eventually become the most populated city in South Dakota. And yet he was troubled. And at a time where everybody had a hard life. I think that's an interesting thing to note too. Remember all those children that him and his first wife had and how almost all of them died? Again, everybody had that story, but it's tragic. Before we hear what a soldier that was there for the tragic event and some of the newspapers have to say about the Amadin murders, let's go to their house. While nothing actually remains of the house, a historical marker marks the spot. And it's a really beautiful spot along the Big Sioux River. Even to this day, there's lots of wildlife that can be found there. It's part of the Greenway Trail, um, part of the bike path that meanders through downtown Sioux Falls. When I went to visit the site to take a picture of the historical marker, a woman was sitting near the base of the historical marker. So I was unable to get a good picture of one side of the marker since I didn't want to disturb her or accidentally get her in my picture because I don't think she wants to be on my Instagram. I didn't ask her though. Maybe she would. I do hope that she read the marker though. Either way, we're about to. Historical marker, Amadin Stonehouse. In 1862, near this spot, next to a small creek which drained into the Big Sioux River, stood the stone house of Judge Joseph and Malhalla Amadin. The house was built of rough quartzite, set with homemade mortar and roofed with small poles, sod, dirt, and brush. It was like most homes in Sioux Falls City, Dakota Territory. On August 25th, the judge and his son William, age 18, left to make hay on the high ridge two miles north. At sundown, Mrs. Amadin raised an alarm because the men had not returned. The Dakota Cavalry Detachment searched, but the bodies of the missing men were not found until morning. The judge died from a rifle bullet in the back and William from a number of arrows. They were casualties of the Sioux Uprising in Minnesota, which had erupted one week earlier. After all the settlers fled, the Santee Sioux destroyed the village, including the Amadin Stone House. In 1865, federal troops built Fort Dakota, but settlers did not again occupy the town site until 1869. Amadin Stonehouse, downtown Sioux Falls, South Dakota. You guys, I have so many questions. Are we hearing a lot of information that doesn't quite, um, I don't want to say add up. Well, maybe it is add up though. We have some numbers here that don't make sense, <laughs> okay? Um, in the 
in this historical marker, we hear that they're making hay two miles away from home. But in the other historical marker, they say one mile. Uh, we also, it's a detail. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter. We know where both of these sites are. I haven't measured them. Um, I haven't walked from one site to the other. We could do that. Guys, should we do that? Let's do that. Anyways. Yeah, I don't know why both historical, why two historical markers would have such a differing opinion on how far away this occurred. Uh, so that's just a silly thing. Let's go to a more important thing. Where and how many times they were shot? I feel like that's something that should have been, like, they should have some solid info on this. I feel like Martha... Well, I think Martha doesn't give us a number. I know Mohalla does, and the, this historical marker does, and some of these newspaper accounts do, but I don't think there's a solid number in any of these. And so then what do we go with? Does it even matter? I don't know. It kind of matters. When you're talking about a kid, Willie, I guess the 18-year-old Willie, with a hunchback. Did we go over that yet? Have we not talked about that? And we're saying that he's riddled with arrows, dozens of them, or five, or maybe it's eight, or maybe there weren't arrows. <laughs> um, I think this is all information that there should be more concise. There should be a yes or no to this. I don't, I don't understand why there's a lot of leeway. An article from the Press and Daily Dakotan, Yankton, Dakota Territory, August 18th, 1884. J.M. Bacon from Sioux City, Iowa, shares his memory from the Amadin murder. This account, 1884, is 22 years after, and from someone who isn't a family member. So let's kind of, let's look at his point of view. The article itself is a little wild. It goes off course a few times, but that's my 2021 opinion. I'm sure it was very a very interesting read in 1884, as the journalist is really trying to sell how amazing Sioux Falls is, which it is. But it's normal level amazing. It's not magical. It's just normal amazing. Who is J.M. Bacon? Well, he was a guy that was here in 1862. And that's pretty special because there weren't a ton of people in Sioux Falls City at the time. J.M. Bacon, why was he here? Okay, he was here with the military. There was a detachment of a company and he was part of it. And all of a sudden things got interesting. So he was in this dusty little town doing uninteresting things. And all of a sudden there's murder. Oh, double murder. Then all of a sudden governor is calling saying, hey, there was a Native American attack really close to there. You guys should be careful. It's like, yeah, we know that because they're, they're straight at murdering us. So then all of a sudden they had to evacuate the entire city. So it got interesting real quick and J.M. Bacon was part of that. J.M. Bacon was from Sioux City. He was the first lieutenant of Company A. In 1862, he was in command of the detachment of a company uh, when orders came in from Yankton, from the territorial governor, William Jane, to evacuate Sioux Falls. But why do they have to evacuate? Well, we kind of know from these historical markers why. Jam was part of a detachment of 40 men from the 1st Dakota Cavalry. So you've heard me say two different things here. That's because when I looked up J.M. Bacon, his military career is a little stitched together. I don't know what to tell you guys. You might be disappointed later, but let's just hang on and get through this first. 
So he's part of the 1st Dakota Cavalry, near where Fort Dakota will later be built, which is in present-day Ethan Phillips area uh, in current downtown Sioux Falls. But on August 25th of 1862, J.M. says he was an ear witness to this event, that he heard gunshots but paid them no attention as he thought it was just cavalrymen's uh, scaring up game. And it was just hours later at 10 p.m. that evening that he says Mrs. Amadin came to his tent to explain that her husband and son had not come back from field work that day. And they did attempt a night search, but the intense prairie darkness, which if you guys have been in the prairie at night, it is a whole new level of dark. And there's a lot of things making noise that are freaky. So I definitely don't want to go looking for two dead bodies. Well, I guess they probably thought they might be alive. They, I'm sure they thought they were dead, but I don't want to go looking for two people in the prairie darkness. No way. A decision was made for them to postpone the search until morning, and in the daylight, they found the bodies. The slain son, William, is referenced as having a hunchback and having dozens of arrows sticking out of his hump in this article. The bodies were then taken back to camp, and Bacon and 25 of his men gathered to hunt down the Native Americans who had killed the two Amadins. The warriors were spotted, but they were able to escape the search party. And even the, the Native Americans then came back that night to camp to raid it, which just shows how fierce they were. Um, I think that is incredibly brave and really crazy. However, the article also notes that J.M. was on alert and was able to thwart this advance. The following day, orders were received to evacuate the city. That's the story that J.M. gives for us 22 years after the fact. And there might be a little gilding here and there, but the story sounds fairly reasonable. I will say a little caveat to this story is I found out when I actually found James Headstone, it mentions some of his service, but not that he was a captain. This, this article references him as a captain, and that sort of stuck out to me. So I went ahead and looked it up, and I found out that uh, J.M. Bacon actually deserted the army in 1865. And then in 1888, he filed for a pension and got it, even though he had desert deserted. This story isn't wildly uncommon. The Civil War, not a great time. I'm not holding that against J.M. I don't know the details, uh, except for some that I found that I don't know how valid they are. The one piece of J.M. story that I've kind of not liked is how he says Mrs. Amadin runs right to his tent when her husband and child are missing. I find that really interesting. It might be absolutely true, or he might just be making himself more of a cornerstone in this story than he is. I have no idea. I found a lot of information about J.M. Bacon, and then I found out that it was his dad <laughs> that I was finding information on. And it was interesting because I even found some other people's research where it kind of gets crossed over and they go into his dad. His dad seemed like a really cool guy, and he lived a really long time, so I can understand how these things got crossed. But J.M. Bacon, uh, maybe he was a good guy, and maybe this story is 100% true. I just know that this story is a little different than the story that we're hearing from Malhala. However, the major parts of the story seem to be the same. We're going to look at some newspaper articles that go over 
the, the murder of Judge Amidon. The Weekly Pioneer and Democrat, St. Paul, Minnesota Territory, September 19, 1862, says the murder of J.B. Amidon. Some days ago, we published a paragraph dated from Sioux Falls City to the effect that Judge Amidon and son have been murdered by the Indians. By a letter from Mrs. Amidon to a lady friend in this city, we learn that it was Mr. J.B. Amidon, formerly of the first ward in this city, who was killed. He and his son were killed on the 25th of August, having been shot while at work in a cornfield on his claim, adjoining to the town of Sioux Falls City. Mrs. Amidon escaped to Yankton and is endeavoring to make her way to St. Paul. In another newspaper article, the Weekly Pioneer and Democrat, St. Paul, Minnesota, September 12th of 1862, intelligence from the Dakota and the Upper Missouri indicates serious Indian hostilities. Governor Jane of Dakota issued a proclamation on the 30th calling on all settlers to organize. Two men, Judge Amidon and his son, had already been killed. General Blunt received a dispatch yesterday from Governor Jane, dated Sioux Falls, September 6th, which says that the Indians made an attack that morning within three miles of Yorktown, the capital of the territory. The courier bringing the dispatch to Sioux City with an escort of 10 men had a fight with 20 Indians 10 miles from Yorktown. The governor calls for a regiment and arms and ammunition as a general Indian war is feared. If by chance you recall back in the Yankton Trail Bridge episode 6, there's a line on that historical marker that spiderwebs into this one, and also Fort Dakota from episode 5. The historical marker for Yankton Trail Bridge mentions after the slaying of Judge Amidon and his son William during the Dakota Conflict of 1862, the entire population and their cavalry escort fled Sioux Falls City and crossed the river at this point. Later, federal troops used this ford when traveling between Fort Dakota, 1865 to 1869, and Fort Randall. So there we go. The murder of Judge Amidon and his son directly resulted in the evacuation of Sioux Falls City and Dakota Territory. There weren't a ton of people in Sioux Falls City. It was mostly three families. And then, of course, the Calvary. So we have this minor exodus from Sioux Falls City to Yankton. From that, Sioux Falls City is abandoned until Fort Dakota comes along to recalibrate the area and breathe new life into the territory. Once Fort Dakota is established, settlers and pioneers alike feel more comfortable coming back. Fort Dakota ends up kind of being unnecessary and actually sort of gets in the way of progress and development once people realize they don't have to worry about the Native Americans. And unfortunately, the reason they don't have to worry about them is because of other things that are happening how the government is handling the Native Americans by a genocide and trying to wipe them away. That's why they were no longer a concern. Once Fort Dakota is established and people realize they don't have to worry about the Native Americans attacking anymore, we'll never understand exactly why the Native Americans in that scouting party decided to kill Judge Amidon and his son, William. We don't know, we don't know why it happened. We do know where it happened. We do know when it happened. 
and we know that the direct result was the evacuation of Sioux Falls City and the complete abandonment of it for several years. During that time, the city isn't used for anything. And then Fort Dakota comes along and reinvigorates it. The fort is here basically to reclaim the area. And so once that happens, it starts to get settled again. And from there, Sioux Falls City becomes slowly but surely Sioux Falls. And we kind of are starting to see that story take off, the beginning of Sioux Falls. How this beautiful spot right before the falls that the city is named for has so much history. So many things happened right there, right along those banks of the Big Sioux River, right before the falls. That's where all of these things are happening, at least parts of the stories. But there's another part to the Amidon story that we haven't gotten to. In fact, there's actually another newspaper article that's pretty interesting. This one from Judge Amidon's granddaughter, Jenny, Martha's daughter. But we'll get to that next time when we go into a little mystery, a murder mystery, really. We covered the murder this time. The mystery is next time. And that mystery is where are the Amidons? Nobody can find their bodies, guys. Gross. <laughs> you guys, I'm so excited that you came and joined me today to learn a little tiny bit about the Amidons and understand at least a part of their story. We're just getting to know them and they're already dead. <laughs> I'm so glad we got to go over these two different historical markers. And specifically, the Amadin Affair is a great historical marker. That one is part of the Pioneer Monument. It has a gorgeous view of town. It's beautiful at sunset. I really think you guys should go check that out. There's a lot of these historical markers I think you guys should check out. In fact, I found a way to connect some of these historical markers in a fun way. And you'll find out more about that in the next episode as well. Have a great and wonderful day, guys. And thanks for listening to the Local Lou Podcast. Through the eyes of local